our time of Q&A with Dr. Greg Forrester. Thank everybody for coming um, and enjoying our lunch with us, participating in this, uh, this time that we have to just dialogue together and think together. Uh, so you will have opportunities to ask questions in just a moment. I'm going to ask just a couple questions to get the ball rolling. Um, be thinking about the questions that you want to ask here in just a moment. If you would, please remember that we are recording this session. So even though we can absolutely hear you without a microphone, we do need you to wait for the microphone before you ask your question. So if you'll just raise your hand, I'll acknowledge you. We'll run a mic to you so that we can get that on record. Okay? So thank you, uh, thank you again for coming, being with us here today for your, your message in chapel. That was outstanding. And for taking the time to talk with faculty. What we have here is essentially some faculty and some Ph.D. students um, that are interested in these topics um, so let me just start off here real quickly so everybody understands exactly what it is that you do. Tell us your title. Tell us what it is that you do with the uh, Oikonomia Network. Well, I'm the director of the Oikonomia Network. I run the national office. The Oikonomia Network is a network of 18 evangelical seminaries and theological educators from those seminaries uh, and from some others who have engaged with us. Uh, we have... Uh, annual events, we have publications, we have a number of things that we do to serve theological educators in the world of uh, preparing pastors and other future leaders to understand a whole life model of discipleship that encompasses fruitful work and, and wisdom about economic issues. So I direct that uh, the national office that serves those schools. Uh, I'm also a visiting assistant professor of faith and culture at the Graduate School at uh, Trinity, which is the liberal arts school. And I'm a student at the Divinity School, so I'm okay. faculty, staff, and student, uh, and have three titles. And I overheard uh, at lunch that that comes with a lot of fun things from time to time, right? Yeah. Um, having uh, faculty, staff, and student status simultaneously <laughs> has never produced any bureaucratic confusion right. whatsoever. <laughs> it's never caused uh, paperwork to go to the wrong place or email lists to uh, get mixed up. But as I always say, it's a culture shock having just moved from a small family-run foundation uh, to a large bureaucratic organization. But if that's my only complaint, I'm doing really well. Yeah. So I don't mind. That's good. So talk to us, start off with your testimony. How did you end up coming to Christ? What were your early years of discipleship? What did, they, what did those look like? And then how did that lead you into what you're doing now? Well, I was raised uh, without Christian faith. Um, I used to say I was raised outside the church and with, you know, with no connection to Christianity. As I grow in Christ, I increasingly realize that um, I was told the Bible stories. And even mm -hmm. though they weren't connected to the gospel and they weren't given coherence and it never really, I never really owned it, I increasingly appreciate the fact that just hearing the stories out of the Bible was important. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I did grow up without a faith commitment. Um, I had, uh, you know, in, in and out of, of interest in Christianity. Sometimes I called myself Christian. I don't think I really was. Hmm. Then I had a conversion experience in graduate school. I like to shock people by saying that I was converted by writing my PhD. Uh, <laughs> but I wrote my PhD on religious freedom and the challenges of creating a social order, maintaining a social order uh, among people who don't have a common God. Because if people don't have the same God, their morals will be different. So how do you have a social order? Uh, because social order depends on morality. Mm -hmm. right? What is fair? What is just? What is right? These are public questions as well as private questions. Uh, so how do you keep a social order together without a shared religion? It's a huge problem. And, and I'm for it. I'm the most enthusiastic supporter of religious freedom you'll ever find. But I think we need to admit we don't really 
have a full handle on how to, how to do that right. Well, writing about that problem forced me to read a bunch of Christian stuff. Hmm. Uh, and I focused, uh, I focused my dissertation on John Locke, who was an early proponent of religious freedom, uh, and wrote a good deal on theology, some of it good, some of it not. Um, and, but he wrote a defense of Christianity against deism, mm-hmm. uh, and I was a deist at the time, okay. and all I, uh, all I can say is the treatment worked. Wow. It was really, it was, it was very well designed. Locke is wrong on some, some critical theological issues, but there are some things he really gets very, very right, and one of them is the interdependence of reason and morality. Hmm. So he says to the deist, you call yourself uh, a believer in God who is rational, uh, and you, you want God to let you off the hook for a few minor sins, but if God is rational, he can't let anybody off the hook for any sin. Uh, just like you can't let somebody off the hook for two plus two equals four some of the time. Mm-hmm. Two and two are always four. Right. Right. Uh, and I just, there's a paragraph defending the holiness of God against the deist conception that just struck me so overwhelmingly. You know, I stayed up nights trying to find the flaw in the logic. Mm-hmm. Right. There's got to be a flaw in this. Well, I gave up that uh, and, and surrendered and, and turned to Christ and have been on the path ever since then. Um, and it's been, it's, it's been the biggest adventure you could possibly have. And so then what about after you converted, what did your discipleship look like? What was your church involvement pointing well, you in the direction of going? Uh, at first, it was very imperfect. Uh, God decided to have some fun with me. He had me convert just as I was going on the job market. So uh, I converted in time to have a serious discussion of Christianity that reflected a real understanding of it, uh, that sort of showed where I was in my dissertation. So secular schools are looking at my stuff and saying, this guy's a Christian, you know, that's a, that's a really uncomfortable thing for us. Meanwhile, I'm going to the Christian schools applying for a job and they're asking, so what church are you a part of? Where, you know, where's the letter of recommendation from your pastor? Mm-hmm. Where's your involvement in Christian activities? And my response to that is, uh, <laughs> I don't know about any of that stuff yet. So uh, I kind of fell between two stools. That's, that's how God landed me uh, on the career path that I've been on outside of traditional uh, academia because uh, I, w- I fell between two, school- two stools, the secular schools and the Christian schools. Uh, I wasn't a good fit for either at the time. Um, but I... It, after sort of uh, uh, after a initial patch of trying to figure out, okay, do I have to get into a local church? Yes. What local church do I want? You know, should I get into? Um, I would say there was a period of about a year and a half where my walk with Christ was in, was very uh, incomplete. But uh, after that, it's been. It's, it's just gone on really well. I joined a Presbyterian church. I'm sorry about that. Um, because my reading of theology before I was converted convinced me uh, that that was the right way to go if Christianity was true. Uh, so I actually opened the yellow pages and looked under Presbyterian church. So I didn't know what else to do. As I know now, that's extremely dangerous because the majority of them are not uh, Bible-oriented. But by the providence of God... There was an ad in the Yellow Pages for the most conservative evangelical Presbyterian church in the entire state of Florida where I was living wow. at the time. 
and that's where I ended Did up. Did they advertise themselves that way? Uh, no, well, no, they didn't. Um, but it was it was definitely a gospel-oriented okay. presentation, which attracted my attention. In the new member class, they asked each of us to stand up and say how we came to the church, and everybody else talked about how they had seen the pastor because this was a well-known pastor with a lot of media. Right? They'd seen the pastor, and they were really. And now we've moved into the area, so finally we get to come to your church. We've been watching you on TV for years, and I stood up and said, "We opened the we opened the yellow pages and looked under Presbyterian," and the guy said. I'm so glad you said that because I've been considering canceling that ad. Wow. We've been spending money on that ad for years and I never knew if anybody ever saw it. <laughs> so as you can see, my discipleship in the early years was a little unformed, yeah. but um, I'm now uh, in a non-denominational church uh, and I have been in where I used to live before I was in a non-denominational church. There are just no conservative Presbyterian churches that are too near where we are. And it has been fun being in a church with different theological conviction has given me uh, uh, an experience of that kingdom reality where, in fact, we can share the church in spite of the fact that we disagree on really very important issues. So I was very honored at the church we were at before we just moved. Uh, they let me teach the new member class, uh, even though my convictions differ from theirs on, on baptism. Uh, and I, th I thought, well, that, that's great, you know, because the new member class is about the gospel. We do agree about that. Uh, so that was, that's that's been that's been really uh, eye-opening and a growth experience for me. Okay, just a minute. I'm open the floor for questions. Let me ask you one other question before we do that. Excuse me. So, as you try to bring attention to the relationship of faith and work, um, what are your greatest challenges in doing that? What type of resistance do you get? What type of interaction do you get from pastors and scholars on that issue? Well. We have been, I've been very pleased, uh, and so have a number of other people in the faith and work movement. When we first started bringing this to seminaries and churches, we were told by some old hands in the, in the faith and work movement, oh, pastors don't care about this stuff. They, they'll never get it. Uh, this is requiring them to admit that the other six days of the week also matter, and mm -hmm. they won't do that. And <clears throat> besides, one of them said to me, they've got 52 sermons a year to preach. How many of them do you really think are going to be about work? Uh, and you know, my answer to that is, well, all of them should connect Sunday to Monday in some in some respect, and I, that's going to involve work in some way. This is you know this is where people live. So whatever you preach on, you want to connect it to where people live. Uh, so I have been very pleased that none of those predictions came true. That we've actually had a, a very enthusiastic reception, and in the past five years, particularly, the faith and work movement has just exploded in churches. Mm -hmm. which is really wonderful to see. The resistance usually comes because in the Oikonomia network, <clears throat> excuse me, and in our sister organization, Made to Flourish, which is the pastor network, we don't just talk about people's individual work. We talk about social structure. We talk about business. We talk about economic exchange because God clearly cares a lot about those things. And human beings are social creatures. We're made to be in relationship with each other socially, culturally, uh, politically, economically, and in many other ways. Um, and the challenge there is the increasing politicization of everything in American culture and the polarization of our politics means that if you begin to talk about anything that goes beyond the individual, you talk about social application, people immediately say, oh, that's a political agenda and we don't, we don't do that here. We don't want to get involved in polarized political conflict. Well. I am totally on board for keeping the church out of polarizing political and partisan conflict. On the other hand, the church does need to say something about how society organizes itself. Mm -hmm. um, 
So one of the things that we've been do, working on is how can we show people that the church can and must say something about economic issues and economic realities without falling into the trap of the church taking sides uh, in, a, in a dividing conflict because the church has to be everybody's church, not just the church of one you know, political party or ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, so the handout that's been uh, shared with you, the Economic Wisdom Project, uh, the Economic Wisdom Project is a series of, of products we've made, uh, resources. This is the vision paper that's at the center of it. It's intended to demonstrate why the church can and must do this. Uh, and it talks about having stewardship over the world and being productive and creating value for people and uh, taking responsible action uh, out of concerns like poverty, uh, globalization, that kind of thing. Let me pause here. I have a couple other questions I can ask, but um, see if anybody from the floor. Dr. Hammett, will somebody get him the microphone? <clears throat> yeah, I really appreciate what you had this morning in the chapel about the fact that we're created to work. I've been doing some reading on that. How do you define work and how do you define leisure? <laughs> <laughs> Very. Um, you know exactly what question to ask, don't you? Because there's no consensus on that. There's a there's a sizable literature discussing that question, and th- there is not a, a consensus. Um, so I wouldn't want to present my definition as if it were rigorously designed to withstand all possible challenges or address all nuances. That having been said, I think that there are two key uh, traits that make an activity work rather than something else. One is that it's instrumental. It's done to accomplish a purpose other than merely the activity itself. So rest we do for its own sake because we need rest. Play we do for its own sake because it's an activity we intrinsically enjoy. So uh, the baseball player who plays baseball because he enjoys baseball is playing. The baseball player who plays baseball because he wants to make a million dollars is not playing. He's working. The boundaries are fuzzy. right? The baseball player who gets paid millions of dollars to play baseball but does it because he loves it is that work or is that play? Well, eh, that's an ambiguous zone, right? But to the extent that he does it for its own sake, it's play or leisure. To the extent that it's instrumental to a cause outside itself, it's work. The other thing that makes work work is that it's productive. Uh, it doesn't just move stuff around, uh, leaving the world essentially as it was but with a different configuration. The total amount of value, now value is another concept that's hard to to define. You ask economists, what is value? Be prepared for a bookshelf full of books. But the total amount of the value in the universe goes up when we do work. It's productive or biblical language, it's fruitful. Uh, Now, I guess the, at some level that leaves the boundary between work and exchange unclear because economic exchange adds value. Right? If I walk into the store with $300 and they have a washing machine and I hand them $300 and get the washing machine, the total amount of value in the universe has gone up because that, that washing machine is worth more to me than it is to the store. And the $300 is worth more to the store than it is to me. That's why we do this. They do it because they want the $300 more than they want the washing machine and I do it because I want the washing machine more than the $300 because it's of more value. Hmm. Right? So, uh, the, actually, the boundary between work and exchange can be, uh, uh, can be porous, right? If three people do a job together, to what extent is it work and to what extent is, are they, is it exchange because they exchange their gifts? 
And what about leisure? Just to right. A well, <clears throat> excuse me. Leisure is a difficult concept, um, and here we see the importance of relating theology to our human cultural concepts, because the word leisure carries an enormous amount of baggage in the West due to Aristotle. Uh, so you read Joseph Pieper who wrote this book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. But when you read that book, what he means by leisure is what Aristotle means by leisure, which includes a whole lot that you and I would call work. Right? When the author sits down to write uh, a novel, he's working, but he's also engaged in what Aristotle would call leisure. And while I appreciate what Pieper and others are trying to do, my concern is that the concept of leisure is so entangled with Aristotelian categories that I believe need to be challenged from a Christian standpoint. So there is a leisure class in Aristotle, and only the leisure class is fitted to do the kind of things that create culture or whatever you... Whereas uh, Martin Luther has these wonderful sermons about uh, what a beautiful, glorious uh, privilege it is to change a diaper. Right? Or to make a shoe, right? Or you know, or to, to make a coat, right? That that's creative, that God has given dignity to us by our ability to make a shoe or to change a dirty diaper. Right? This beautiful sermon on marriage in which there's a section on what a glorious privilege it is to change a diaper, because that baby is going to die if no one takes care of it. Right? And Luther is confronting these medieval priests who say it's unworthy of us to descend to the lower uh, tasks of marriage. And Luther flings that right back at them. He says, I learn how to love my neighbor by changing dirty diapers. Mm. And you say it makes me less qualified to be a theologian. I say it makes me more qualified to be a theologian because I change dirty diapers. I just, the poetry of that is just wonderful the dignity of the ordinary person's work. So I'm trying to steer clear of sort of Aristotelian dualistic categories that I think are need to be challenged. That having been said, what Pieper is getting at is to resist a utilitarian ethic in which the only thing that makes things good is that people want it. Hmm. Now, I agree with, with Pieper on that, that we do need to resist a utilitarian ethic. And a lot of the discussion of economic markets is just mired in this crass utilitarianism. I think there's very little that's needed uh, as much as a robust challenge to that from the church. Hmm. Wow. Dr. Heimbach, if you'll wait on the microphone. Good to have you here on our campus. It is on? All right. Um, let me preface this by saying this is a serious question. I'm not being mischievous, and I'm not setting you up. Uh, it really is a question I have. And I, I, I have not thought it through. But uh, it, I was caused to think of it again because of your remarks during chapel and, uh, you know, rightly critiquing evangelicals for having a maybe truncated view of the gospel and thinking, well, it's just about being saved and then waiting to go to heaven and uh, doing nothing. And, uh, and so, absolutely, that's, that's twisted, that's something wrong. But there is a theme in Scripture, very important, we probably spend too little time on it, about entering into God's rest. And uh, the failure of entering into 
rest and uh, describing the entering into Canaan as entering into rest and critiquing those who didn't go in and so forth. And uh, this theme that uh, we're looking forward to this, um, this end state that God is calling us into, and it, it uses the word rest. So having, thinking about what you said in chapel and, and thinking what you just said about leisure, my question is this. Is rest in the biblical theological sense the same as leisure, doing nothing, or is it work? <laughs> I, no, I, I'm, la I'm laughing because of the uh, challenging the challenging nature of the question, but uh, it, is, it is a difficult thing to get one's head around. I think rest scripturally clearly can't mean simply cessation of activity because God's people enter into a life of rest in the Holy Land. It doesn't mean their activities are to cease. They've got all kinds of activities they need to do, including work. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The, the challenge is that at the same time, the Sabbath is described as rest and contrasted with work. Um, it's interesting that in the commandment, God commands them to honor the Sabbath. He also commands them to do their work, right? Six days shall you labor and do all your work. That's part of the commandment. Fourth commandment is not only honor the Sabbath, it's also do all your work. But the Sabbath is a rest. So I think without, again, there's no consensus on this, but I think rest can mean simply being in a state of shalom, a state of peace with God and neighbor. There's a sense in which um, having activity to do that you understand as good and that you understand as contributing to flourishing is a rest from trouble a rest from lack of peace, right? a rest from the disconnect that people walk around with in their lives. The Sabbath is a rest from ordinary work, but that doesn't mean a cessation of activity even on the Sabbath because Jesus you know, uh, eats bread on, on the Sabbath, takes the kernels on the Sabbath, and he says, well, you know, who of you would not pull your cattle out of the ditch on the Sabbath? Right? Uh, so, and he's not declaring the Sabbath void. We can have we can have a dis, you know a separate discussion about the state of the Sabbath in the new, the new covenant era. Uh, but even under the old covenant, Jesus is saying the Sabbath does not mean a cessation of activity. Um, in some places, I think rest clearly means rest from trouble. Uh, in other places, rest is contrasted to ordinary work, but doesn't mean a cessation of all activity. This is a profound question. What is re just like what is work is a profound question. Um, one helpful thought that I have seen on this is in um, Tim Keller's book on work, where he talks in the last chapter of his book about how for the non-Christian, they're working even when they're resting because they're haunted by their knowledge that they're at some pre-conscious level you know, they may not be aware even of what's going on in their own mind. But at some level, they're haunted by their knowledge that they are out of accord with God and out of accord with their world. Right? They're, they're, they're wrong with God and they're wrong with their world. And so even when they're resting, there's this fretfulness. There's this sense of uh, insecurity, fear, 
that never goes away. And this is why the unbeliever's life is so miserable, is that no matter what you do that superficially may give you pleasure or uh, calm or whatever it is, there's this underlying haunting knowledge of disconnection from ultimate reality. So they're working to either suppress that feeling or to do something that will deal with it. They're never at rest fully. Whereas, he says, for the Christian who has fully uh, you know, assimilated the gospel and its implications, there is rest even when they're working. Because there is a spiritual rest from that work of the unbeliever, that constant agitation that is below the surface of the, of the unbeliever's life. The believer has rest from that constant agitation that's there in the background, usually unconsciously. Uh, so even when the believer is working hard, he's at rest because he's in God's will and he knows it. And that doesn't resolve all the questions, but I have found that helpful. Dr. Keithley? Thank you for... Uh just great talks. We enjoyed, enjoyed hearing you in chapel and in this time. Um, do you have a recommendation uh, for resources uh, for how we might think Christianly about the corporation? Uh, yes. The, 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 I mean, you, have, you have plenty in the scriptures that talks about the market system, about the, uh, the institutions of the family, uh, the government, the church. The corporation doesn't really fit well in in, uh, in, in some of those discussions, uh, especially whenever you have multinational corporations that their agenda doesn't natu naturally uh, match with the agenda, perhaps, of, of, of our government. And they certainly are not, uh, they certainly take a moral stand on a lot of issues. Uh, here in North Carolina, uh, we've had uh, the transgender issues uh, and a lot of controversies. Some of the greatest pressure we've received is not from government, but from corporations, like uh, certain corporations saying they're not going to do business with the state of North Carolina. So how are we to think about this? Uh, do you, what resources would you recommend? Right, and let me begin by affirming your concern. Uh, when I go out and give talks on faith and work, if there's a question and answer period and it's with not theological educators, but a more general audience, I get a long succession of questions about the ethical challenges that Christians face in their workplaces, working for organizations that are not committed as organizations to the same uh, worldview or set of moral uh, commitments that they have. And even those who have not yet been asked to do something that violates their conscience are scared that they're going to be any day now. Uh, when I was on a panel uh, at the Evangelical Theological Society last year, uh, Matt Anderson, my good friend uh, and fellow political philosopher, said uh, we're, Christ, every Christian should know at what point it becomes legitimate to resist government, if any. Right? You should know what you think about that question. At what point is it legitimate to resist government, if any? And I responded, I do think every Christian should know that, but I think the more urgent question is every Christian should know at what point do I quit my job? for reasons of conscience. What might my employers ask me to do that I just can't do? And if it means I lose the job, so be it. And boy, would it help if people felt confident that the local church was gonna be there to help them, right? What a witness would it be if every local church were ready and willing to pay your mortgage for a little while because you lost your job for the sake of the kingdom, right? But are our churches ready to do that? I don't think people feel confident. 
so the, again, God's ordained you know, uh, the, the, the people of God to support each other. Uh, but coming to the, your question about resources, uh, I would say there are, there are a bunch of resources in the vision paper that I've handed out, but let me mention three uh, particularly. The best academic one that I've seen is called Business for the Glory of God. It's co-written by Scott Ray and um, Kenman Wong. And it's an ethics textbook. It's designed for use in ethics classes, but it's, it's pretty meaty. It's, you know, it's not simplistic 101. Uh, and it confronts the wide array of ethical questions about business. And it's focused on business as an institution. All right, to your, to your, to your question. Uh, the second one I'll mention is by Jeff Van Duzer. It's a more popular book. It's, it's written for general reading audiences. It's called Why, God's, uh, what is it? Why God Cares About Business Dash and What Still Needs to Be Fixed. Uh, and it's a sort of general, theologically contextualized general sort of look at the role of business in God's plans for, all of, for human life. Where does business fit in that? And then the third one that I'll mention, I'm, I'm thinking of different resources for different purposes. Um, the best thing I've seen that's written actually for business leaders uh, is by David Gill, and the title is It's About Excellence. And it's written for, a, for a, a Christian and non-Christian alike, but it clearly comes out of a, an underlying Christian worldview, and it's meant to be practical advice on how to run an organization ethically. Uh, one of the common themes, I don't want to end without mentioning this, one of the common themes across these resources is we can be nimble in the face of um, unethical demands from businesses that we work for. So the answer to your boss, when your boss asks you to do something that you don't think is right, the answer does not have to be either yes or no. The answer can be, what about this? Right. And if we can exercise our creative gifts as beings made in the image of God and think of a way to accomplish the, the legitimate business purpose without falling afoul of an illegitimate activity, and we can say, hey, instead of doing that, what if we did this? We'll get to the legitimate purpose, but this way we can do it without falling afoul of that unethical problem. That's much better than just saying, no, fire me, right? That, that, I think, might be one of the really critical services we provide to our neighbors is to help them see ways that legitimate purposes can be accomplished without, uh, uh, without cutting corners. Now, your, your question has also pointed to larger issues of social order that involve political questions. And uh, uh, so it's not just about business. The question of how Christians and non-Christians can share a common law and a common social order is lurking in the background here. But that's a broader set of issues uh, than the business question. Hmm. Any other questions? We've got time for at least one more. Thank you for your, your talk. I wasn't able to be here for your chapel message. I can go and watch that online. But I, my name's Greg Lamb. I'm a PhD student in New Testament here at Southeastern. I really appreciated your, your, your giving your testimony just briefly, and mine is somewhat similar. Um, I didn't grow up as in the Southern Baptist Convention. In fact, there was a time in my 
childhood where I would go to whatever van would pick me up, you know. Hmm. And, and so I would like for you to maybe share some insight in how that has helped you as an academic, as a Christian, having that diverse background and really not growing up with any dogmatic tradition, so to speak, missiologically, just, you know, mm -hmm. maybe speak on that just for a bit. Well, you may be disappointed that I actually embrace a dogmatic tradition now. So um, part, part, <laughs> part, of my, part, of, part of the experience is I value um, confessional coherence in continuity in part because I see that as something I was missing in the secular world. Uh, so I, I value creeds and the ongoing discussion of systematic theology in, in continuity. Uh, and when I encounter fellow Christians who have a very low view of the value of theology and the value of, of creedal commitment, um, I, I try to remember they're coming from a very different background where their experience of that has been people who want to use it as a weapon to control them, right? And that's a different, that's a different experience. So we do need to have both coherence and grace. Um, but that having been said, I have been worshiping for many years now in churches that are, have a, a very basic confession. You know, it's a, it's a very simple thing on their website, and they're not, um, they're not in continuity with a, a, a you know, they're non-denominational churches or they're congregational Baptist churches that don't have a, a, a denominational, um, a strong denominational affinity like the Southern Baptist Convention is. Um, and I think it has, it has challenged the preconceptions that I was taught in my conservative Presbyterian uh, discipling about why people want that kind of church. Uh, so, I have really had to repent of some of the, frankly, ignorant stereotypes that were uh, presented to me in the conservative Presbyterian world about non-denominational churches and why people, why people uh, go that way. Um, and it is a challenge to, to meet each other halfway. And I find if you understand why people hold the positions they hold, you can acknowledge their legitimate concerns while also showing them your legitimate concerns. And it has, it has helped me academically because I have really experienced the unity in diversity and diversity in unity of the Christian community. And that's not only because I have a set of convictions, but I worship in churches that are, are somewhat different. But I also, as the uh, director of the Oikonomia Network, I go visit churches of every part of American evangelicalism. Uh, I like to say, we do it all from Presbyterians to Pentecostals. Um, and, you know, I have been in the Pentecostal prayer meeting, and I have been in the Southern Baptist chapel service, and I have been in the sort of uh, magisterial, liturgical service. And I really have a lived experience, just from traveling around to all these schools, I have a lived experience of the unity that underlies all this as evangelicals in our resting in the gospel and the value of the diversity of expressing it in so many ways because it is so inexhaustible, that the gospel is so inexhaustible that even the diversity of our many traditions is insufficient to give full expression 
to our belief.